Whether it's traversing mighty rivers, trekking through thick jungle or crossing vast deserts, I'm sure you, like me, have always been fascinated by the exploits of history's great explorers. Today, it might feel like the days of Captain Cook, David Livingston or Scott of the Antarctic are long behind us, with the edges of the map looking fuller than ever. However, in this episode of Bailiwick Podcast, I, Charlie Flynn, was lucky enough to be joined by one of Britain's greatest living explorers, Colonel John Blashford Snell, CBE. Formerly of the Royal Engineers, Colonel John Blashford Snell was responsible for mapping some of the last untraced corners of the world during some truly hair-raising expeditions that saw him battling rapids on the Blue Nile to crossing the entire American continent in a pair of Range Rovers. In this episode, we discuss his many exploits, his attempt to ward off bandits on the Nile with a bribe of Mars bars, the invention of whitewater rafting, and we'll even get an insight into the early days of Britain's most famous astronaut, Tim Peake. You're Colonel John Blashford Snell, CBE. You've been described as one of the world's most renowned explorers. You've conducted over 100 expeditions for the purpose of, of scientific research and community aid. You conducted the first descent of the Blue Nile. You uh, famously drove a pair of uh, Range Rovers from Alaska to Cape Horn. And you are the founder of the Scientific Exploration Society, as well as Operation Drake and Operation Raleigh. So thank you very much for coming on the, the podcast. So have I missed anything out there? I'm sure I've only just scratched the surface of your of your kind of plethora of achievements. And Jer- Jersey is my ancestral home as well. Yes, of course. I understand you were educated at Victoria College. I was. I was in Sartorius. Uh, did you go to Victoria College? I did go to Victoria College and I, I was going to ask. I, I was in Dunlop myself, so very disappointed to hear that. Someone's got to be. <laughs> I just wanted to ask, so, so you obviously, you know, you are one of the kind of Britain's greatest explorers. Was exploring something that you always wanted to get into, or was it something you kind of fell upon? The, I suppose it goes back really to my parents. My father, um, who went to Victoria College as well, was uh, persuaded to go into the church uh, by the Dean of Jersey. And to get ordained, he went out to New Zealand as a young man, having married my wife, sorry, my, his wife, at... Uh, a very early morning wedding at St. Helia Parish Church, and then jumping on a boat, going to New Zealand, getting ordained there, setting up a parish in South Island, New Zealand, and really exploring what was a little-known part of the world in those days. And he was a very keen Boy Scout. My mother's was a, uh, a girl guide, and they set up guiding and scouting. And so we had a sort of family history in that way. And when the war came, my father originally had been with the New Zealand Army. Uh, he then went came back to England, he was in the British Army, he was an army padre, and he fought throughout World War II uh, as an army chaplain, and uh, came back to Jersey many times, and of course, naturally, I ended up at his old school. So, uh, following that, of course, uh, I suppose I was inclined to exploration, and from my point of view, it was the most wonderful opportunity, because, as you know, Jersey has all sorts of exciting things to do. Um, we, we swam a lot, we dived. Diving was just coming in, and we admired a chap called Hans Hass, uh, another one called uh, Cousteau, who were starting off this business of swimming underwater with aqualungs. And we, we helped to form the Jersey of Aqua Club, and uh, we had some very exciting adventures with that, some of them rather hair-raising, I might say. 
there was a lot of exciting things to do at Victoria College in those days. I was a boarder, so every weekend I would be out on the Christmas and Wands or diving off the coast or whatever I was doing. When I got to Sandhurst, the military academy, to join the army, I continued with my diving, and I also uh, managed to get into the Royal Engineers. And the Royal Engineers have a history of supporting exploration. They are known as the Army's Explorers because we have to build roads and bridges and railways and so on around the world in difficult parts of the terrain. And uh, so every couple of years, providing I behaved myself and did a good job, uh, my bosses would encourage me to take an expedition somewhere, uh, providing I took a few soldiers with me. And that started me on expeditions all over the world. And then I was posted back to Sandhurst as an instructor. When I arrived, the commandant, who was a very outward-going man, said to me, I want you to be the adventure training officer, and your job is to get as many of these blighters overseas for the benefit of their character and the least possible detriment to the empire. Uh, And uh, you're going to be the adventure training officer. And so um, we started running expeditions in the long Sandhurst vacations that they had in those days and sending cadets out to build schools, clinics, help people, look for bugs and beetles for the Natural History Museum, and um, then come back on a fort. And this was partly funded by the army, but a lot of it was funded by the young people themselves. And then they grew and grew and grew and grew. And then one or two massive opportunities came up. Emperor Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia, um, said he wanted his Blue Nile explored, which was the last sort of unexplored piece of Africa. And it was 500 miles of deep gorge filled with rapids and uh, difficult conditions. It was a mile deep. No one had got down it. No one really knew what was down there. There were also enormous crocodiles, lots of hippos. And to make it worse, a lot of bandits who were trying to escape paying income tax. And um, so we launched with the army backing uh, another expedition in which there were, again, a number of Jersey people on it, including the late General General Sir John Wilsey, who died a couple of years ago, uh, who came from Mofon. And um, we managed to get down this river. And in so doing, we invented whitewater rafting because we took some rubber boats and tried, thought they would bounce off the rocks, which they did. And they survived. And people suddenly realized this was a wonderful new sport to go whitewater rafting. And that's how it all began on the Blue Nile in 1968. And there was, after that, various expeditions happened. And then along came this question of the Darien Gap. Now, the Darien Gap is in between Panama and Colombia. It's about 250 miles of dense jungle, swamp, snakes, bugs, beetles, bandits, a uh, pretty unpleasant place. And it's the blockage that has stopped the continuation of the Pan-American Highway that runs from uh, Alaska to Cape Horn. Well, this was a request from a, a joint national committee in South America to the British government. And uh, it's a long story, but uh, eventually it ended up with me being asked to run it um, with the backing of the army and also the Scientific Exploration Society, which by that time had been formed. Mm -hmm. And I recruited a team of 60 or so um, men and women, uh, say four from Jersey, and the Rover Company 
had a new vehicle that was coming out called a Range Rover, and they wanted it tested. So the RAF flew two of these to Alaska, and an army team brought them down from Alaska to Panama. And there we had a whole mass of oil engineers and scientists also to look at the impact that this road, if it came off, was going to have on the environment. So that has to be taken into consideration. Also, what was going to happen to the people who were living there? So we then, in January of 1971, uh, sorry, 72, we, we set out uh, to cross this incredible obstacle. Well, we had with us these two Range Rovers, and um, they got about 10 miles in, and then they started breaking down. There were all sorts of problems uh, with the transmission, and finally they got stuck in the jungle. Whilst that was going on, Kelvin Kent, who was this other gentleman, managed to get hold of a broken-down old Land Rover in Panama, and used that. we used that as a, a pathfinder, and it went ahead with the engineers. Uh, it was much lighter and easier to handle than these massive Range Rovers. And meantime, back in England, the Rover Company were redesigning the differential system, which they did, and flew them out, parachuted them in from our Army aircraft, and we eventually got them repaired. But meanwhile, the Land Rover had gone ahead, hacking its way through the jungle, creating a sort of path that we hoped the Range Rovers would follow. Meanwhile, all around, the scientists were doing their work, and the anthropologists were talking to the local Indians, and uh, we had a great many adventures with, uh, with the snakes, the bandits, and everything else. And uh, eventually, we reached the far side in Colombia, where there was a massive swamp about the size of Wales, and we had to get across that. And we very fortunately had a, a raft that had been built for us by the Avon Company. It was an inflatable, and uh, we were able to float the Range Rovers over the swamp into onto some firm ground and get across the other side and uh, back up into Bogota and then right the way down to Cape Horn, where we completed the journey of 17,000 miles which had taken something like six months. Um, there were a great many problems that faced with it, as I said. We had, sadly, a number of people died from the Colombian forces who were helping us. Six of them were drowned, another six were killed in an ambush with bandits. Um, so it was a fairly tough venture. Uh, but all the sort of British contingent got back safely, and the Range Rovers got back. We brought them back from Cape Horn, and they're both in museums in England now. And uh, we people keep saying we should go back and do it once again, but I'm not sure that I want to. <laughs> Is it true that on your expeditions you carry a Jersey flag with you? Yes. The Jersey flag was presented to me by Brian Harrison. Brian was the editor of the JEP. Before we went out, he said, I think you're blooming mad, but I want you to take a Jersey flag and fly it. Wherever you go, tell people about the island. And so he gave me this small dirty flag, which I still got, and um, I, I, I took pictures of it. And he said, if you send us a picture back, we'll publish it in the, in the Evening Post, which they did. And I've carried that flag on every expedition I've done ever since. That's fantastic. Um, can I just ask, what is it about the sort of profession of exploring that, that particularly appealed to you? I mean, is it is it the sense of discovery? Um, I mean, I suppose you've also met some absolutely incredible people. I mean, you've like you said, you've met Emperor uh, Haile Selassie. I believe you've met President um, Mobutu as well. Um, I mean, 
what what is it about exploring that 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 kind of particularly appealed to you? Well, I suppose the thing that drives me on about it is curiosity, because I'm an engineer, really. And if you ask me to climb up Everest and get some rare flower that was said to be on top of it, uh, I'm not really a particularly physical person. I would probably build a scaffolding up the side, and um, uh, so I always like a challenge and an obstacle. I've just come back from one in, in the Amazon area of Bolivia, uh, which is really quite a challenge too. And, um, you know, halfway down the down one of the rivers after several weeks of journey, I thought to myself, what the hell am I doing this? <laughs> but uh, you, 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 afterwards, you look back on the adventures and also the people you had with you. On that last expedition to um, Bolivia in November, we had an amazing girl from Jersey called Jennifer Alonge, uh, who you may have seen, of course, died sadly uh, early in January. Not Nothing connected with the expedition, but she suddenly got an awful disease and passed away, which was a great loss to the island, but uh, she really was the most incredible girl involved with all sorts of charitable works, and she was really the head uh, of publicity for Jersey tourism for years. What kind of qualities do you think kind of make a, a good explorer? Is it just that sense of curiosity? Yes, and compatibility. I think you've got to be prepared to get on with people of all races, colours, creeds, and so on. Um, most of our most of our teams are international. And the next one I'm doing will be going to Mongolia, and we have Americans, British, Canadians, Colombians, uh, Chinese, uh, and and Mongolians, of course. So we. You, you do meet people of all nationalities, and my address book is, is littered with names from all over the world, people of whom I've remained friends all my life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is there any particular um, kind of person that you've met on your travels that really sticks out? They're all a bit crazy like me, but uh, I, I think I think Kelvin Kent of Jersey was one of the most remarkable. He was also a mountaineer. He went with Chris Bonington up to Everest and so on, and Kelvin was the most remarkable administrator and a person with a very calm, steady nature who, who never flapped or got worried. He was calm in crisis and decisive in action, we used to say. And uh, that's what the Duke of Wellington said with these qualities of leadership. But uh, no, Kelvin Kent was certainly one, and I know that his family still live in the island. So you talked a little bit about kind of some of the, the struggles you faced on, on your kind of Darien Gap expedition. I mean, is there a moment that you remember um, kind of from your travels that you found particularly hair-raising, maybe where you thought, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to kind of get out of this one? I think, yes. I think when we've had some interesting encounters with wild animals, when you get a, a five-ton elephant coming flat out at you, it can be quite disturbing. But usually the animals will back away. I, I mean, a tiger are one of the most frightening things to be charged by. But again, they very often do it in bluffs. I've been charged several times by tiger. Admittedly, I was on an elephant at the time, uh, as one is. You know. uh, at, um, but to see a tiger coming at you with its paws out and its, its claws flashing in the sunlight, and it's roaring its head off until the elephant knocks it sideways with his trunk, it's still pretty scary. But without a doubt, much more fighting is meeting hostile people. And uh, we were ambushed twice on the, on the Blue Nile in 1968. And being army, we were armed, and we had to fight our way out. And when, when you meet people who are trying to kill you, that really is much more frightening than the animals. 
I think I read an account of that particular encounter. Do tell me if this is if this is untrue. I read an account that you were um, these bandits attacked your camp at night and you confronted them wearing your pith helmet uh, in your underwear um, and fired a flare at the ground uh, to kind of scare them off. Is that is that true or is that completely spurious? Well, it's more or less the story. The, the first attack was actually in daylight, and I tried to um, persuade them to go away by offering them Mars bars. We had a lot of Mars bars, and they, but they didn't seem to like them. And we then um, they then opened fire on us, and so we had to fight back. Um, and we managed to escape down river. A very brave naval officer was with us, took uh, my boat up river to draw the fire away from our camp. Forgetting, of course, I was still standing on the beach. And eventually, thank God, he came back and he said, jump in, jump in quick. And I, I jumped into the boat and we headed off down river being surrounded by flying rocks, boulders, spears, bullets. And luckily, only one of us was hit, and that was Chris Bonington, the climber, who was hit by a flying rock and broke a rib. But we managed to escape from that. And then the next night, uh, at about one o'clock in the morning, um, we were attacked by a large group uh, who did come at us, and we'd taken the precaution of going to bed. Uh, I don't think I was in my underpants, because I think I'd kept all my clothes on suspecting there would be trouble. And in my top pocket, I kept a loaded mini-flare launcher, which is a little device that fires a flare. Yachtsmen carry them. I'm sure you've seen them in Jersey. And uh, uh, I heard the cry of the sentry shouting, stand to, stand to, here they come. And there were a vast crowd of people rushing up the beach of this little island on which we were camped towards a fence that we'd built around the camp out of thorns. And... Uh, I, I leant out of my batter. This is a sort of cover that we put over ourselves at night. I leant out, pushed the flare up into the sky, and of course it lit up the beach. And in that I could see these shining bodies of people uh, waving spears and swords and coming at us. At that point, very luckily, <clears throat> um, the chap who'd raised the alarm was running ahead of them. But one of the attackers was trying to behead him with a sword. And... Um, the second sentry who was on duty inside the thorn fence saw it happening and he raised his revolver and, and fired. And that man was called David Bromhead, who was the direct descendant of Bromhead VC of Rolf Strift. And anyway, he hit the leading attacker uh, who went down. And in the light of my flare, the other attacker saw this chap go down and I suspect he was their leader. And they all stopped. Uh, and that gave us a few minutes to, to catch our breath and reload and, uh, and get the defense organized. And we held out until several hours later before we had to escape down river into some nasty rapids, which were full of crocodiles. That's another story. And uh, we eventually did get out. And as we were emerging up river came this assault boat that had come up against all the rapids from our base a long way away, uh, headed by, by John Wilsey. And John had bought this up, hearing we were in trouble, to come to our aid, and by a miracle had reached there. And he, with it, of course, he bought supplies and more ammunition, and with that, the expedition uh, survived. That is an absolutely incredible story. Um, is there anywhere kind of left on Earth that, that you think these kinds of expeditions, these kind of adventures could, could still be had? I mean, is there places that, if you had your time today, you would, you would want to focus on? Well, I think anyone who's been in the army in Afghanistan has probably been through just as frightening adventures as I've been through. Um, 
I, I, I wouldn't say I go looking for trouble. I mean, I, one hopes that most of the time you'll find things are peaceful. Um, we, we don't carry arms on this as much as we used to, but we do take the precaution of having one or two local members of the armed forces with us who do carry weapons. I had a wonderful chap with me in, uh, in November from the, uh, the Bolivian Navy, and uh, <clears throat> we met some uh, people who were sort of mildly uh, antagonistic. And it was, it was marvelous having this sergeant there with a, a 45 swinging at his hip. And occasionally when he was talking, he would tap it and smile. <laughs> and this had a, a, a sort of a, 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 a sort of calming effect on these people who hadn't got any weapons anyway. Uh, but to see if there was an armed an armed chap there was on our side. Just uh, just something else I was curious to ask you. I mean, one of the other things that's kind of incredible about you is is you are kind of always trying to encourage young people and um yeah, I mean young people to kind of get involved in in uh, exploration and and kind of in the course of that, I believe in in the nineteen seventies you founded uh, Operation Drake, um, which has now led on to um, the organisation Raleigh International, which kind of sends young people out to various communities around the world. I mean, I, I don't know if you might be able to tell me a little bit about how that all got started and and what your motivations were. Well, Operation Drake began after the Zaire or Congo River expedition, uh, the Jersey Evening Post helped us to run a campaign to get two young people from Jersey onto the expedition. And we had this uh, a pretty tough test in Roselle Woods, um, and two young men were selected, uh, Peter Pico and Richard Labouchier. Uh, they were about 18 each at the time. Peter was a young policeman, and Richard was doing a business studies degree, I think. And uh, we took them on this really tough expedition on the Congo. And um, that lasted for many months. And at the end, those two and other young people who were on the trip went around the world lecturing and trying to inspire other youngsters with the same sort of Elizabethan spirit. And um, the Prince of Wales heard about this and sent for me. And he said, look here, you can do this with two or three young people. Why can't you do it with two or three hundred? And uh, I said, well, we might be able to say, well, go away and think about it and tell me what you suggest. So I went to where I got the Scientific Exploration Society team together, and we joined up all the expeditions we could think of and uh, decided uh, that we would buy a ship, go around the world and do community aid, science, environmental studies uh, with young people. I went back to the Prince of Wales, and he said, that's wonderful, wonderful. How many can you take? I said, well, about 400. Good, good. He said, what's it going to cost? I said, well, that's the problem. Nine, about 900,000 pounds. What? He said, that's ridiculous. I said, well, things do cost money these days. Oh, he said, all right, well, I'll help you raise the money. And he did. And he wrote some wonderful letters to people um, saying that the spirit of Sir Francis Drake lived on because it was coming up for the 400th anniversary of Drake circumnavigating the world. And so Operation Drake, as it was called, with the patronage of the Prince of Wales, as he then was, now of course the King, was started. And it was a huge success. And we had a, a, a team of 11 young people from Jersey, and uh, the largest any, of any sort of individual contingent. And when it was just about over, the Prince sent me again. He said, you can't stop now. You've got to make it bigger. Take more. I thought, God, how are we going to do that? And so Operation Rally was born. And uh, this time we had a, a ship provided by the government, a big 2,000-ton uh, search vessel. We also had a sailing ship as well. 
and we took 4,000 young people uh, from 27 different countries, many from Jersey, and uh, we went around the world for four years and carrying out worthwhile tasks. All the people who came on it went through a very rigorous selection test, and they carried out the same sort of community aid, scientific, environmental tasks around the world. And um, that was a success. And, but, of course, I was doing it as an army officer. And we had a lot of army support. But I was coming up to my retirement at age 55. And the army said, we're sorry, but we can't keep paying you to run what is, in effect, a charity. And so it should be self-supporting. So I decided to hand over, uh, which I did, and it became Rally International, which went on until quite recently, last year, in fact, when sadly... Uh, due to the COVID pandemic, uh, they went bankrupt. Uh, but it has now been restarted by a commercial organization in South Africa. And I'm glad to say that Rally is now going once again, uh, which is a very hopeful sign. And uh, I hope to see uh, some of the young people from Jersey taking part in that. Because the older ones from Jersey who've been on it are always contacting me and telling me about how it changed their lives. One in particular I remember well, when I went to Alaska to see how one of the expeditions was going on, they'd just done a canoe trip, a pretty pretty rigorous one, and I said to them, well, you've done that, now you can reach for the stars. And one of them did, and his name was Tim Peake. And Tim became an astronaut, and uh, he said that his time on rally completely changed his life. And so we've helped somebody to become an astronaut. But there are others. The Britain's representative at the United Nations at the moment, who's now Dame Woodhead, who was with me in Chile. We had another chap who eventually won an Oscar at Hollywood. Another one who got went on into business and got the uh, Coca-Cola franchise for Russia. And we had a, a lady recently wrote to me who was largely responsible for finding one of the main medicines for treating COVID-19. So a lot of these young people have really achieved notable events. And, of course, also we had uh, uh, Prince William and his wife both on rally later on. If you were to sell um, kind of going on one of Raleigh's expeditions, I mean, what kind of things do you, do you, do you gain out of it as, as a person? I mean, do you, is there certain qualities that it will kind of naturally bring out in a person, do you think? Well, I think self-reliance I think, is, is, is one of the most important. And uh, the test we put people through to get on rally and take war, trying to find people who had a spark of leadership, but also self-reliance. And, um, I mean, when you read Tim Peake's book I was reading the other day, he talks about the tests he was put through. And says they were more rigorous almost than the tests he had to go through to become an astronaut. That's fantastic. Um, you are still exploring. Um, have you got a, an expedition in the works at the moment? Yes, I'm due to go to Mongolia in June where we should be doing work on some of the ancient archaeological sites. We're mounted on horses, and uh, then uh, we're doing archaeology, zoology, botany, biology. And we also, we always take dentists on the trip with us, and we're going to be taking out the teeth of the local people, because that's the one thing they appreciate. If you go along with medical or dental aid, you really are very popular indeed. And unfortunately, the Mongolians eat too many sweets, so they have the most terrible dental hygiene. I, I, as a very quick parting question, mostly just for my own um, my own benefit, uh, I've always I've always loved kind of exploration history, and I've always been fascinated. Is there a particular sort of explorer in history that you most admire or um, kind of most look up to? 
Oh, I think, yes. I think uh, uh, Sir Henry Morton Stanley's um, conquest of the Congo uh, in 1871, or sorry, 1877, I think it was. Um, I mean, that was when he went across Africa from one side. No, this was after he'd found Livingston. And um, he was following up sort of Livingston's ideas. I think that one certainly is always stuck in my memory. It's the most remarkable feat. I mean, he he had 300 people with him at the start of the expedition, and I think about 150 died. Um, and all all the white men who were with him died. He was the only one who survived. Um, but that really was quite 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 a formidable achievement. And you, of course, followed in his footsteps, I believe, in, in, in uh, was it 1974? You, was it your um, Zaire River, uh, or now Congo River expedition, was, was on the centenary of that? Uh, am I correct in saying that? Yes, it was, yes. And um, we would have called it the H.M. Stanley Memorial Expedition, but uh, President Mobutu wanted to focus attention on the name Zaire. And so we had to change the name to please him. <laughs> well, I, I think that's just about everything. Um of course, you will be returning to Jersey fairly soon. Um, you're going to be back in Jersey on the 24th of February, I believe, and you're going to be doing a talk um, at the Royal Jersey Showground, tickets of which are available now on Eventbrite, um, and you'll be talking about your Darien Gap expedition, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Is that right? That's right. And it's been organised by the Jersey Scientific Exploration Society by David Longwa, who's the deputy chairman. And David's done a huge amount of work, and we've got the support of Jacksons, who are the Land Rover agents, and also, of course, the Land Rover Forum, Jersey Land Rover Forum. Um, and there'll be lots of interesting vehicles on display. I'm told we may even have one that's recently driven out to Kathmandu and back again from another Jersey president. Uh, so there's a great tradition of exploring by Land Rovers and Range Rovers in Jersey. And I'm very grateful to all the supporters and Jacksons in particular for their help. And what are you hoping people will get out of this talk? Well, I think the best remember is the whole event is aimed to try and raise some funds to keep the spirit of adventure alive in Jersey and uh, if the Jersey SES can find some funds then we'd be backing a really worthwhile contender from the Jersey, a youngish person, 18 or over, they must be a Jersey resident um, to, to go out in the world and do something worthwhile Fantastic, and how can people apply to do that? Well, they, they, they can apply through the Jersey SES and uh, you can do it too. Uh, the details uh, will be available on the night of the 24th. So I advise people to come that night. Uh, but the Jersey SES is a registered charity in Jersey. And uh, or they can write to me and, uh, and we'll put them in touch. Thank you very much for, for, for joining me. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I'm sure there'll be people queuing up to buy tickets to, to your talk. Thank you again to Colonel John Blashford-Snell for taking the time to talk to us. If you want to attend his talk on the 24th of February, tickets are available on Eventbrite. If you enjoyed this episode of Bailiwick Podcasts, do give us a like and share, and do make sure to visit bailiwickexpress.com or pick up a copy of the JEP. Tune in next week for more.